Good afternoon, everyone. This is our 71st Fireside Chat. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start with Vinicius. Hi, Tom. So Hi, my, Vinicius. Question, my question is about uh, improving meditation. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I'm meditating, I believe that I get into a point where I'm thoughtless, uh, and this is marked by the sensation of the some part deep in my brain to be expanding. I try to keep the sensation for as long as I can, and when I catch myself thinking again, I try to restate my intent of the current meditation practice. Sometimes some images flash in my mind for like a very short period, less than a second. I try to go without thinking, but I'm not even able to judge those pictures because they disappear really fast. Do you have any tips for improving meditation? Should I try to like bring those pictures back or um, or, or something? Uh, I often find conflict in getting into a point consciousness state with the objective that I have for the meditation session. Thanks. Okay. <clears throat> it sounds like the interruptions you're getting in your meditation are very quick and more or less subtle. It's not like you start, uh, you know, going over your grocery list for, uh, you know, going to the store or things like that. It seems like these are just subtle things, like you, uh, you know, you feel to be expanding or, uh, you know, some vision or something goes by, but it's very instantaneous. I'd say that's really not a problem. You know, those sorts of things will probably go away in time. It's just not really a whole lot that uh, you can do with those because they're not things that you're doing so much as things that are just happening to you. So ignore them. You know, don't worry about it. Don't give them any of your energy. Don't give them any of your attention. Just ignore them. And I think you'll find that uh, over a few months, they'll probably just go away. They don't really mean too much of anything. So just by ignoring them, I think they'll, that, that'll be enough. Okay. Uh, are there any goalposts that I could see as like, okay, now I'm ready to go on with the intent that I had for that session? Or should I just try to be thoughtless and then, or try to be like in point consciousness and then yeah. go back to the intent? The goalpost should be, um, well, there's two goalposts that I can think of that are common. One of them uh, is everybody will, will get, and that is that um, you're no longer processing sense data. Okay. Now, when I say no longer processing, that doesn't mean that you can't tell that you're sitting on a chair. You can't tell that you're lying on a bed or you can't, you know, that you can't uh, hear, you know, the, the traffic outside. It just means you're not processing it. You're not paying any attention to it. And as soon as your attention goes away from it, it disappears. So you can think, oh, I feel my back on the bed. But if you're not thinking that, you know, if you're not putting your focus on it, you don't notice your back or the bed. They just don't exist. So <clears throat> when you've let when you let go of processing your physical sense data, then you're ready. If you get solid in that place where and you can ask yourself that question. OK, so this would be a thought that you're having, you know, you're in this this calm space, it seems to be good, it seems to be stable, then a question can, can come up and 
am I processing data? And if you think about it for a minute and you don't notice anything other than the fact that you are, you know, your thoughts, that you that you exist as consciousness, <clears throat> then the answer is no, you're not. And if you want to check on it, you can say, well, you know, can I feel my back? Can I feel, you know, the chair? Can I feel this or that? Or can I hear something? And if by putting your attention on it, you can, but then as soon as your attention drops from it, it's gone. You're in point consciousness. That what that's what defines point consciousness is that you're no longer processing sense data. That's the point where you can now have your intent to go off and do something. So that's one way. Another way that that will suit almost everybody, but but some people don't have these, and that is the awareness of the pulsation state in your body. Often, as people get to the point where they let go of their sense data, they start feeling this close to four hertz oscillation in their body. And that's also a signpost that you are, you have let go of your, of your sense data. And I think that that pulse is created by the fact that your sensory system no longer has any input. And your sensory system doesn't know what to do with that. In other words, most, a lot of your sensory system is always in balance. You know, and if there's no input at all, it starts searching for input. It starts turning up the gain, if you will. You know, just like a, you know, a uh, automatic gain in a, in, a, in a microphone. If it's really, really quiet and there's no inputs, the gain goes up. And I think that is what's happening. So the absence of your sense data creates the pulsation state, which is then a really good marker for the fact that you've let go of your sense data. But some people don't really notice the pulsation state, so that's not quite as universal a, a marker as it would be just to be aware that you're no longer processing sense data. And you want that to be stable. You don't want to just get there and an instant later go off. You you want that to be a, a place that you that you can just sit in and hold it as a stable place. And then it's time to launch into an intent to do something else. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Um so um it's about mathematical optimization as uh, I mentioned before. So mathematical optimization is one of the core methods for training modern neural networks and is the concept of minimizing an energy function. General mathematical optimization is a very tough problem since the energy landscape might be highly complex and the convergence of the method depends on initial guess. It might be easily get stuck into local minima. So if we define a function that its input is consciousness or just random arrangement of bits and its output is entropy, could, be, could the LCS or us be optimizing this function with the tools that are similar to the ones that we know? As one example, uh, a common algorithm for optimization is gradient, where the gradients of the energy function respective to the input are used to estimate a next step. Could we, as consciousness, be learning on a similar way? How are the learning patterns that you observed in the LCS? Or are they something out of this world that we cannot grasp with our with our metaphors? Yeah. Well, when it comes to consciousness, those 
that metaphor of optimization that you're talking about, which is you look at a gradient, then when that gradient uh, uh, finds, like you say, a, a, a false minimum or a local minimum, it's not the system minimum or the lowest minimum, it's just a, um, a local one. And there may be multiple local minimums, right? You can have a dozen local minimums and you want to know, am I on a local minimum or is there a minimum that's deeper or lower than this one? In other words, a more optimal place to be. Um, I'm just restating that a little so all the listeners can, can get an idea of what it is we're talking about. So that optimizes the process. Okay, now, I can think of a, of, a, of a corollary to that that does have to do with consciousness. The, the consciousness processing um, might work similar to that, but I would, I would uh, say it differently. Belief is the, is the uh, kind of false local minimum in this case. You can be looking for a solution. You can be processing towards something. And if you run into a belief, that'll stop you there. And that's like your, you know, false minimum. That's, that's, what, that's your local minimum. And you can get stuck there and think that that is the truth, that you've gotten the whole answer, that, you've, that you have now understand the problem when, in fact, you don't. You have a you have a belief. Well, the same can work with with your ego and your fear in general. It can trick you into believing that things are true, thinking things are true when they are not. So it's that fear creates the ego, creates the belief. And in that sense, it works the same way. Your mind searches for a solution or an understanding. And there's lots of of uh, local Beliefs that you have the understanding, you know, like you say, kind of a false minimum. And those do get in the way. And how do you, you know, how do you uh, get beyond that? Well, the same way you would in, in writing an algorithm that's, that's searching for a minimum. You, you go a bit away from it, right? You start increasing your your distance that you're going away from that minimum and see if you, when you then let the, the, the solution search a minimum again, does it go back to that same one or does it find something else? You see, that's kind of your error correction in that, in that sort of software. You get to a minimum and is that real? Well, you can start distancing out from that, right? Get further and further away and then letting it recalculate and if it always goes back to that same minimum, then you're pretty certain that that is your minimum for that problem, for that system. But if you start increasing your distance away from it, from your, you know, your starting point, we're talking about a starting point in the calculation, right? It's where it's, it's your initial start for where you start calculating the minimum. If you start moving that further away, that's how you test to see whether it's a local minimum or not. Well, that just takes more computing power and it takes more time uh, but that's the price you pay for getting for knowing that you've got the right answer well in in my um, metaphor of saying that's like belief it's the same way when you think you might be stuck in a belief or you're not sure well start moving 
beyond that belief, you know, start, start going back to uh, fundamentals, going back to the beginning, start over and see whether or not all of your assumptions are skeptical, but open-minded assumptions, or whether there's just something you read and you believe it, or a story you heard or you believe it, or somebody told you that and you believe it. See if you can find things that are contrary. So yeah, in a way, it does work. The mind does work. Now, if you talk about the mechanics of it inside of consciousness, the algorithms that are, you know, that are represent us as consciousness, well, I have no idea. You know, that's, that's more down in the details of consciousness that, uh, that I don't get into exactly how everything's computed in the, in the larger consciousness system is, is uh, not something that I, that I know about. But I can certainly see the corollary, the corollary in trying to come up with a solution. It's that fear, that belief, that ego is what causes you your local. And by local, you're using just the stuff that you think you know. That's local. You need to go out and search beyond that and see whether you keep coming to the same answer. That's what really defines skepticism. When you're skeptical, you do that. You keep spreading your search further and further out to see if you still end up back at the same conclusion. Okay, uh, cool. Just just a short uh, follow-up. Is there any difference between belief and bias? And, and bias in the sense that you're estimating a probability function kind of wrong. So let's say the probability of something is 1% and you think is around 60%, so that's a bias. Or is that a belief or is there any difference between bias and in, in, in learning algorithms or, or belief? No, they're, they're very much the same thing. You know, um, an expectation is also, you could put that word in there. You know, you expect 60%, but it comes out one. You know, so an expectation is a form of belief. A bias can be a form of belief. You know, these are all just things that the way you think it is, but it's not the way it is. The problem with most people is that if they're not skeptical, when they get a data point of 1% and they think it's 60, they'll just say, oh, must have been a bad calculation or that's spurious data. It doesn't fit. So we'll throw that out and, and do it some other way or the, or the algorithm I'm using is not working. You see, we start to justify the things that we believe and we throw away data that disagrees, particularly if it strongly disagrees with what we believe. So that tends to be the problem. So instead of coming to a conclusion of I believe it or don't, it's better to put a probability on it and adjust the probability up or down, depending on the information that you get. So if you get some, you think it's 60, you measured it's one, then your probability of it being 60, maybe go from, from 99% down to only 50 or 60% or 70%. You still might think that's the better answer and the other one might be wrong, but you need to start lowering that probability because now you have data that conflicts with your belief. Okay, cool. Thanks, Sam. Do I have another, do I have time for another, I don't know, or should we just move on? And then Please go ahead. Okay, thank you. Uh, so it's a question about slower learning. And I can say that over the past years, I've been struggling 
with sometimes high entropy decisions, even when they seem very trivial. And since I've been following MBT for some time and also all their spiritual grow, growing paths, I think that I grasp spirituality intellectually, but to get down to the being level or to the atoms is the real hard part. So my question is, can I be dumb on the being level? Uh, why does it seem so hard to learn? I have periods of time which I can improve myself, but then something happens and I fall right back or worse than I was before. Are there any tips you can give to be more stable on learning? Is there any solace uh, in, in being a slow learner? <laughs> yes, uh, no, I would call myself a slow learner. Um, uh, Part of your problem is your perspective that you're looking at this problem with is the intellectual perspective. It's, it's the learning intellectually, okay? Learning intellectually, you just go, you get a book or you get some information and you read it and you understand it or you ask somebody and they explain it to you. So you just gather the information, there it is, and now you understand it, problem solved. Well, change at the being level doesn't work that way, okay? You can't just learn more and then understand it. Understanding at the being level really requires you to change who you are at that being level. You actually become a different person. It's understanding it at, it's changing you at the being level in a fundamental way. So it is slow. It's just one of those things. It's slow for everybody. I mean, here we are, 200,000 years, humans have been walking around on the planet, and look how much we've grown. We're still stuck in a warlord mentality for the most part. You know, if you, if you look at us now, we've done a lot better in the last three, four, 500 years. But you can see learning has been very slow for Homo sapien. And that's because changing yourself, who you really are, the way you understand, changing your perspective, you know, the way you interpret reality, that is not easily come to. That takes effort. <clears throat> and you have to keep working at it or it doesn't happen. That's the effort that you have to put in in order to grow up. Growing up is not an easy thing to do when it comes to, you know, spiritual growth or you know, reducing the entropy of your consciousness. That's not a trivial process. But we look at our intellect and say, well, it's just a matter of gathering the facts, understanding them, and you're done. Why Why doesn't this other thing work like that? You know, okay, I've gathered the facts, I understand it. Now, uh, I'm still not done. That's because that's intellectual. And the the intuitive process takes a lot more time. So, yeah, you you no doubt are a slow learner. So am I, and so is almost everybody else, because these just take a lot of time. And, yes, you'll make the same mistake, and you'll say, oh, I caught that. I'm not going to do that again. And five minutes later, you do it again. And you tell yourself the same words, and, you know, a week later, you do it again. And it seems like you just can't get that into your head. But keep trying. Keep pushing. Don't give up. And you'll find that eventually the time between slip-ups gets longer and longer until it goes to infinity, until you don't slip up anymore. So be patient. Okay. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Uh, Vinicius, um, thanks for your question. And Masi, would you go ahead next? Thank you. Hi, Tom. 
Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you very well. Okay. My first question is that you say that the only thing that is fundamental is consciousness and everything else is virtual. For me, the virtual reality is also consciousness. What I mean by that is that everything is consciousness, both physical and non-physical. The physical and the non-physical are opposite sides of the same coin. Another way of putting it is saying that both the observer and the observed are the same. Do you also see it like that, or is the virtual reality something that is not consciousness or separated from consciousness? The, the virtual reality is computed by consciousness. Okay. So the virtual reality is a product, it's a computation, just like The Sims. The Sims is computed by a computer. The Sims characters don't really exist. They're just mathematics and logic that create something. Okay. Now, the player exists, the person playing The Sims, making the choices. That's the consciousness. That certainly exists. But the players don't exist in the same way. Consciousness is aware. Everything is not conscious. I define conscious, you know, something is conscious when it has a finite, a non-zero decision space. In other words, consciousness, in my definition, is awareness that makes choices. Yes, I understand. Can I interrupt? I'm sorry. Can I interrupt? Yeah, yeah go ahead. I, I'm saying that the objects are still the consciousness of the subject, subjective consciousness that is observing them. I mean, when I uh, observe an object, that object is still my consciousness. This is how I feel. Well, it's... Of course, I'm, a, I'm consciousness at, as an observer, but the thing that I'm also observing is my consciousness. Okay. The thing that you are observing is your interpretation of the data that you receive from the computation of that virtual object. So all these objects are virtual. So you look at a painting. When you look at a painting and you interpret that painting to mean something to you. I mean, you interpret it as a painting, not just smears on a wall. You know, you look at it and you say, oh, that's a painting. You interpret it. So what you see is your interpretation. So it is your consciousness that is interpreting it, but it's not your consciousness that's created the data. The data is created by the system, by the server that's serving up the virtual reality. Now that server is consciousness. So you're right in the sense that everywhere you look, there's consciousness, there's consciousness behind it. It's the consciousness that sends you the data, but it's not your individuated unit of consciousness. It's another piece of that larger system of which your consciousness is a part. You see, so I'm making the distinction between you as an individual unit of consciousness and say the larger consciousness system. You are a piece of that. So you can say at one level of looking at it, you can say, well, I'm just, you know, part of the system. But you're not the entire system. You're just a part of the system. Just like uh, my my hand here, this hand is a part of my body. 
but it's not the whole body. It's just a part of my body, and it has its own functions of what it does. But it's a part of the whole body. But it also has uniqueness in its in its in its function and what it does and where it, you know right hand rather than left hand and so on. It has its own in, independent existence in a way, but it's still part of the body. So you, as an individual unit of consciousness, you have your own independent existence in a way, but you're still part of that larger conscious system, but you're not the system. You are just a piece of it. So now that's the way I look at it. You can look at it in a way that, yes, I am the system, the system is me, and so on, and don't differentiate yourself as a system. I'm a piece of the system, you know, imagining that I'm me, but that's just words, you know. It's just the way we interpret words. We're not saying anything really different there. It's just another way of expressing that. I find it simpler and less confusing to talk about the individuated unit of consciousness as a as a separate thing, even though it is just a piece of the larger consciousness system, just like I talk about my hand being a separate part of my body, but it's still part of my body. So in that case, the system, which is not you, sends to a part of itself, which is you, information. And you take that information and you interpret it based on your experience, you know, your own personal experience. And you are the only one that has that experience. Your experience is unique. So that's what makes you special, so to speak. You're not just the system. You are this unique piece, you know, this, this unique chunk. And you have your own history. You have your own beliefs. You have your own um, knowledge, experience, fear, but aren't, aren't the objects in my consciousness still, in my subjective consciousness, all the object, objects that I observe? So you know, all, all the objects you observe, you just observe and they're there. They don't exist by themselves in a place. In other words, think of yourself, your consciousness. The system sends you information. You get the information. You interpret it and you see a painting or you see a dog. You see something. And that's what your interpretation is. That's what you see in your reality. That dog is your interpretation of the data that you got. That's all it is. It's not like there is a, a dog that exists somewhere. The dog is just described by information which you get and interpret. So there's only information. Reality is information. That's it. It's not anything more or less than that. Reality is our information. And this very specific reality that we see is information that we have received because everybody doesn't receive the exact same information. Uh, it's the information you receive and the way you interpret it. That is your personal reality. Those things but, don't really... Go I'm ahead. sorry. Don't, don't you say that consciousness is the fundamental reality? Yes. Don't you say yourself that? Yes. Consciousness is the fundamental reality. Absolutely. So, everything everything uh, else is, is virtual. 
but the virtual reality so is not sort of consciousness then it's a product it, of consciousness consciousness creates the virtual reality okay but so, is it my consciousness or the consciousness of larger consciousness system that creates the virtual reality or can can you say that i am also the consciousness system that creates this virtual reality or you can say that and depending on how you mean it it's okay you know it's not a, necessarily a bad metaphor you can put it that way but it's confusing i think so i rather think of you as a piece of that consciousness separate your function because your function as an iuoc an individual unit of consciousness is not to create a server that serves up you know your own reality yours is just to receive the data from that server so yes you are a part of that system but you're not the whole system you are a subsystem of the whole system but i know people use the context in which you know all consciousness is all you know it's like all one pervasive thing it has no subsystems it has no piece parts it's just all consciousness well in a way it is the source of everything so i'll say that it is the source of everything but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have subsets so we can't break out separate things and i break those separate things out to make it easier for people to understand the model easier to understand how things how things work so in that way it's a matter of how we how we use the words and the way we the way we explain it not so much that your concepts are wrong it's the way you're expressing those concepts differ your metaphors are a little different than my metaphors but it's not a rightness or wrongness thing you know people have metaphors that make sense to themselves i think we all come to roughly the same conclusions you know downstream so it's it's not really a a, a thing that's that's arguable or that anybody really should argue about it's just a choice of metaphors, the way you want to express it. All right, all right. I had a second question. Is it all right to ask that also? You talk about the digital Big Bang. I presume that it has nothing to do with the physical Big Bang. The reason I say this is that in a materialistic worldview, you can have events occur occurring without anyone observing them. But in the MBT worldview, that is not possible because everything is rendered into the consciousness of the IUOCs as they as they observe the world. What is this digital Big Bang? Is it a metaphor for the moment when the random bits started to become more organized? Yes. Yes. What it is, it's a it's a metaphor. Okay. You hear me say that word metaphor a whole lot, you know, well, that's, you know, we have something very abstract here. And in order to talk about it and put it into our language, we use metaphors to describe it and its piece parts. So that's exactly what it is. So when the run button was pushed, I say that's the, that's the beginning of the digital big bang. And that just means that there is a simulation going on in this simulation. There is initial conditions, which is the plasma, high temperature, high pressure, and there is the rule set of how that plasma can interact with itself. Those two things are there, but nothing's happened yet. It's a simulation in a computer. And when that run button's hit, 
the simulation starts to compute. And because it's high pressure and high temperature, it expands and so on. And then you end up with our universe. So that is where this virtual reality we call the physical universe comes from. It's a simulation. That's why we call it a virtual reality. So that's the point. So yes, you put it, uh, you know, a metaphor for the moment when the random bits, the random bits in this case are all the bits describing that plasma and that high temperature and pressure. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I want to ask about the plasma, but how, how can the plasma exist if nobody observes the plasma? It's just defined. It's just defined in an equation. I call it plasma because otherwise I wouldn't have a word for it. It's what we in the physical world would call a plasma. So I have to use that word because it's a, you know, a potential plasma. It's just think of a computer, think of a initial conditions and think of a rule set. And that defines the simulation. So there is no plasma. There's never any plasma. It's just what we happen to call that ball of, of uh, potential that is there. And when that potential is let loose, in other words, when the computer starts to compute, then it changes according to the rule set. So it's just initial conditions in a computer and that begins to co compute. But that's then an analog to what the physicalists or the, or the materialists, re, you know, describe as the big bang. Cause they start with this ball of plasma, but they have no explanation of where does that ball of plasma come from? They just start with that and start with the rule set and then it evolves. Well, my point is that there is no physical plasma. It's just a computation. It's initial conditions in a rule set. And as it computes, that computes, that creates this virtual reality we call the physical universe. Yes. I wanted to also ask that, is it so that in a way, in your model, humans were created first and then the world created second. And what I mean by that is that human consciousness was created first and the universe as we uh, experience it and observe it was created second. Yeah, of course, yeah. before, but of, I mean, before us, there were animals and they also, also observed the world and experienced the world, right. but they didn't observe it the way we observe it. They didn't define the universe as we defined it. Uh, so, yeah. I, what I mean by universe is the universe that how we uh, humans observe it and define it. Okay. Yeah, I can talk to that. First of all, first you had consciousness. Okay. And second, then you have individuated units of consciousness, but they're not human. They're just consciousness. They're just chunks of consciousness. And then you have this digital big bang and a simulation that simulates, you know, a, what we call, the physical universe. Now things were, things grew there, like you say, animals, plants, bacteria started and evolution went from there. And as those things made choices, the system made choices for them. The system made all the choices. 
for everything. Okay? Now, when it found something, when something evolved in that simulation that made interesting choices, choices that a consciousness, an individual unit of consciousness might want to make, you know, because it would help them grow up, then individual units of consciousness began to log on and make choices for those entities. So let's say we get a goldfish or we get, you know, something, a jellyfish. If that jellyfish made choices that a consciousness could learn from, then a consciousness could log on to that jellyfish and make its choices and so on. So the system continued to evolve. And yes, dogs and cats and horses and whatever it was that was back then were conscious. They were making choices, right? But the system was making all those choices until some IUOC said, oh, I'd like to make choices for that thing. Then it could log on and make those choices and the system would let it make the choices rather than the system itself making them. So eventually critters that had larger decision spaces, you know, more interesting choices, moral choices. And those were probably also, you know, wolves and bears. They make, they, you know, they make interesting choices. So consciousness probably were playing those. Dogs and cats and individual units of consciousness were playing those. But they probably didn't play bacteria and they probably didn't play jellyfish because those choices are just not all that interesting. Okay? Yes. Mostly, just, mostly just hardwired. So I'm sorry. When, when we come along, then... I'm sorry. That's I want to ask, is it all right? But is it fair to say in that moment that you describe the universe as we humans observe it or define it didn't exist because the animals didn't uh, observe or define or experience the universe in such way as we experience it or define it? They, they, no, they didn't need to. They were not, they were not players. So that's why I'm saying, is it fair to say that the universe came to existence after human consciousness was sort of developed, or only after that? The no. universe as we humans, you know, define it or came no. to existence only when, then? When humans evolved, humans, that's a special animal that happened to evolve in this virtual reality, right? That's a single animal. Lots of animals evolved here. When humans evolved here, and IUOCs began to play those human avatars, that's the first time that you had a human, you know, you might call that IUOC, that the human consciousness, because it was playing a human. When it was playing a cat, it was a cat consciousness. When IUOCs played, you know, bumblebees, it was a bumblebee consciousness. And that the system played all the player, all the parts, all the different animals and critters were played by the system until they became interesting enough for IUCs to want to log on to them. So it's not like that you had critters and, you know, that their observation of their world creates the world. Your observation of the world only creates it in your own mind. The simulation exists only in the minds of the players. It doesn't exist of itself. It only exists in the minds of the players. That's the nature of a virtual reality. It has no existence outside the minds of the players. 
Think of Sims. Think well, of but that's exactly why I say this: that the you know universe as we define it only could have existed after you know human consciousness was uh, was developed. Okay. I mean, the animals didn't. There was the universe, but it was a different kind of universe for the animals when they were they existed. Right. Yes. In that sense, that would be correct. What you're saying then, from that viewpoint, it says that until until humans became conscious, there were no conscious humans. That's pretty straightforward, yes. So only a, the humans' view of the of the universe only existed after there were humans. Yes, so, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a tautology, I believe, is what they call that. Okay, that satisfied me definitely. Okay. Well, thank you. Go ahead, please, Boris. Okay, thank you, Donna, first of all, and hi, Tom. Um, <clears throat> so I have quite, um, I would say, a tricky question because, um, uh, as you always say, uh, free will is a fundamental part of consciousness, and actually I have one about that. And so basically, in one of your latest videos, you uh, mentioned that uh, we should always find balance between the path of awakening. Um, I did a big switch of paths a couple of months ago, and I've been guided from my ego-based path of warrior to uh, the path of surrender. Um, within this process, I'm hearing and feeling more and more that our free will is uh, ultimately an illusion and a major source of suffering for human beings, I mean, for ego-based PMR. So I wanted to know your opinion about that, and also um, if you would have some tips for people making the switch like I do. Well, I would disagree about the free will. I would, you expected me to say that, no doubt. Uh, uh, you always have free will. Surrender doesn't mean giving up your free will. You still have to make choices. Surrender basically means that you are aware that there is something greater than you that is you know, creating all of what you're experiencing. And you, rather than try to force your will on it, you agree to accept its will, you know, rather than force it, you know, instead of having it my way, you know, I want it to be this way. I want this kind of job. I want that kind of relationship. I want this, I want that, and so on. That's you kind of forcing your own uh, ego, your own self, your own wants and desires on the system. You say, okay, system, I'm not going to work against you. I'll work with you from now on. But by working with that system doesn't mean that you don't make any more choices. Mm you still have choices to make. You interact with people. When you interact with people and that person, um, you know, let's say does something very, very wonderful. You know, you have a, you have a, an immediate reaction to that. That's yours. That's free will. If they do, if they're rude to you, if they say something very rude to you, you have a choice of how you react to that. You have interactions with people and in those interactions, you make choices. You have interactions with your in your job, things you you need to do. 
you have to make choices. So just because you have surrendered doesn't mean that you no longer have a free will. It just means that your ego is no longer trying to force your wants, needs, and desires onto the system. System, give me what I want, you know? And if you don't, you know, well, that makes me angry. You say, that's an ego talking. Okay, so you give all that up and you say, okay, system, I'll work with you. I will be kind. I will be caring. I will be cooperative. But yet in your interaction with life, with people, with, you know, even the scenery, the rocks and the trees and the water, you know, with your interaction with things, you have choices to make. And those choices are your free will choices. And a problem exists sometimes when people go to the path of surrender, that they, they want to surrender their free will choices. And they stop making their own choices. In other words, you know, should I continue living here and doing this job? Or should I move someplace else and do something else? And rather than make that choice themselves based on on their own input, they ask the system, system, should I stay or should I go? And then they'll get a yes or no answer. And if the system says yes, well, they pack up and move. Even though they don't necessarily know why they're moving. Well, just the system has something for me there, you see. Well, if you live your whole life like that system, should I eat potatoes or should I eat, you know, corn? Ah, the system says potatoes. Okay, then I'll eat potatoes. You see, as that gets down more and more into the everyday level of your life with your interactions and choices, if you require the system to make all of those choices for you, you've given up your free will to the system. And what I have found is that when people get to that point where they give up their free will to the system, the system will tend to give them a good slap to make them stop that. They have to make their own choices. They have, to, they have to make these choices. They have to live their own life. They're not just a little shadow puppet of the system that just does whatever the system says because there's no growth in that. The growth comes from the choices, your choice, your free will choice. Ah, that worked out good. That's growth. But if all you're doing is basically being a slave to the system, well, now you're not even a, an IUOC anymore. You're, you're an NPC, a non-player character. The system is making all your choices. You see, that defeats the point of even having an individuated unit of consciousness. Well, just let the system make everybody's choices and get rid of all the individuated unit of choices. And now we're back to a point where slow growth because there's not so many possibilities anymore. So the system wants you to make your own choices. It just doesn't want you to have to struggle with it, to fight it, you know, to force it, to do things. That's just ego talking. So that's what it means about surrender. It doesn't mean that uh, you don't make any choices anymore and you give up your free will. I've known people like that, you know, everything they do, they, they feel incompetent to make the choice. 
they don't feel like their choice is worth that much. Why not get the larger conscious system to make the choice, and then it would always be the right choice. So, you know, should I go shopping now or should I give my dog a bath? Oh, well, I'm going to go ask the larger conscious system which one of those I should do. You know, and it'll tell you, so, okay, you go shopping for groceries because that's what it said. You know, the particular lady I'm thinking of that, that did that, she had a pendulum. She'd hold the pendulum, and if it rotated one way, it was a yes, and the other way was a no. So she asked the system everything. You see, you've given up your free will. You've given up your ability to grow. You're no longer making choices that matter anymore. So that's the difference. That's how that breaks out. Yes, when you go to the path of surrender, you do surrender, but it doesn't mean that you surrender your free will. What you're really surrendering is your ego (laughs) and you're surrendering your beliefs. That's really what you're surrendering. You say, instead of driving my life from my ego, I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, that's good. That's good. Don't run your life out of your ego and out of your beliefs. So that's really what the surrendering is. It's surrendering the ego, not surrendering all your choices. Tom Campbell here. I and MBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.